Perhaps you've heard before that if someone speaks three languages, we call them trilingual. If someone speaks two languages, we call them bilingual. If someone speaks one language, we call them an American. That is surely the case for me. In all of my visits to Russia, I basically learned one word, thank you, spasiba, and I don't really think I'm saying that one right. I was there a lot of times, and I never really learned the language. And Christy says that when I'm in a situation where I'm not speaking the language and the folks don't speak my language, my solution is just to talk louder. If I talk louder, maybe they'll understand me. Well, you know that doesn't work very well. The problem I'm describing, which perhaps all of us at one time or another, we've experienced it, is the challenge to be understood. The the challenge of meaning, that meaning be communicated with clarity and understood with accuracy. The communication of content is our concern this morning. God's Word as revealed through his servants, the word of God. That's the burden of the text, that God has made truth known. And this morning, on several levels, I need you to think about this. The truth is, if I can say it that way, the word of God is the truth of God. So we have a challenge and a concern that we communicate that clearly, that I speak it well, that you understand it that we are accurate with the text. This is our concern every morning, every gathering we have. But then specifically this morning, the text has some complexity that makes it challenging. Because the passage that we're going to look at in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 14 deals with an issue that in some circles is controversial, in other ways is difficult for us to understand because there are cultural issues and there are history issues that are now not the same. And because of that, the message and my task of communicating it with clarity is more difficult even than it typically would be. Now, some of you think, well, you struggle with that every Sunday. But uh, it may be that this morning there's a little bit of an extra challenge. So all I'm asking you to do, I'm trying to warn you beforehand, and I'm also going to ask you to stay with me. Because I think it will become clear as we work through the text. We're in 1 Corinthians, by the way, if you want to open your Bibles there. As we work through the text this morning in chapter 14, I think you'll see how there are practical applications to our lives, even though the burden of the issues or the the balance of the issues, the majority of the issues we're going to talk about, have to do with that church in Corinth 2,000 years ago. So with that by way of an introduction, and I suppose you would say as a warning, let's consider God's Word together. Because what we find is that the nature of what God's Word tells us, the problem that Paul was trying to address as an apostolic writer 2,000 years ago, the fact that this is left for us now in God's Word today, the burden of all of this is that we are to be concerned about building one another up and that that concern is rooted in love. Basically, if you're going to love people, you're going to be concerned that they're built up. If you're expressing a concern that one another is built up, the the technical word is to be edified, if you're going to be concerned about that, it's a practical way of loving one another. And we see this in several places in the book of 1 Corinthians. Let's begin back in 
chapter 3. Would you look there with me? We'll get to chapter 14 real quickly, but look with me for just a moment in chapter 3. Do you remember this illustration when we looked at this text several months ago? In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, look at the language that Paul uses in verse 10. There we see the Word of God says, According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. So here you have the metaphor of building. It's repeated over in chapter 8, although you might miss it in most of our English translations, but look with me in chapter 8 at verse 9. Dave preached these texts well for us several months ago, but in chapter 8, verse 9, look at what it says. He says, take care that this right of yours, remember this is the issue of eating at uh, eating meat that had been offered to idols. Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge, you who have knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And the word encouraged there is built up. So here we have a negative example of the building up is to be built in a wrong direction. Look with me over in chapter 10 and look at verse 23. This was a saying that they were quoting to one another. In verse 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful, Paul says. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. So being built up is an expectation of what it means to live and to serve and minister in the church of Jesus Christ. And so we come over to chapter 12, look at it, and look at the last verse in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. And the word there says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a more excellent way. And what is the more excellent way of desiring higher gifts? It was last week's text, chapter 13, it was love. Love and being built up are connected together. And so you come to our text this morning, chapter 14, and you see the first verse where the word says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spirituals, is literally, the, the spiritual gifts is an interpretive translation. It's the spirituals, earnestly desire these provisions that God gives through the Spirit. Now we're going to look at verses 1 through 25 this morning. But for an initial reading, would you go with me to verse 12? And let's read as a, as a foundational text. Read in um, chapter 14, not verse 12, but verse 6. Would you begin there with me? And just follow along. We'll read down to verse 12. In 1 Corinthians 14, beginning in verse 6. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as a flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if a bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is un not intelligible, that is unintelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if you do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestation of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. And if there's any other theme... 
for our text this morning, it's nothing other than that. At the end of verse 12, strive to excel in building up the church. Versus their odd pursuit, what was going on in the church at Corinth, that they were chasing after this strange manifestation of showy drama. The old radio preacher J. Vernon McGee talking about this text, he summarizes it. He says, basically, Paul is telling the Corinth church, cool it. Just cool it. All of your excitement about dramatic spiritual gifts, what we call grace gifts based on the Greek word, all of your excitement about that, Corinth believers, all of your desire to see something unusual and miraculous and, and something that's impressive, just cool it because you're missing the point. In love, you should be concerned with edification. And so what he does this morning is he contrasts two of these gifts that are dramatic, prophecy and tongues, and he shows the inadequacy of tongues as compared to prophecy. I want to show you the reason for that, and they'll, hopefully I'll be able to explain how that applies to us. How do we understand these gifts? How do we practice them? And along the way, what we find is what church worship services are really about. And then also, we'll talk briefly about your place in those worship services. Now, that's a long introduction this morning. But look with me again, beginning back in verse 1. And let me show you that in church, first of all, prophecy was to be valued over tongues. Prophecy was to be valued over tongues. And when I say in church, that's the term that Paul uses down in 19. He doesn't say in the church because he's not talking about a building. They didn't have buildings when he wrote this. He's saying in the gathering of the church. And he calls it, I love this, he calls it church. He said in church, and what is church? It's when God's people gather for worship. When God's people together to observe the ordinances. When there's a, a teaching from God's word. This is church. And in church... He says prophecy is to be valued over tongues because clearly there was this exaggerated emphasis on speaking in tongues. And evidently that gift was being misunderstood and it had been misused in its attempted use. I hope I'll be able to show that to you this morning. So with that, look at verse 1. Remember again the theme, pursue love and earnestly desire the spirituals, the spiritual gifts especially that you may prophesy. By the way, this is a command to the whole church. It's not like you individually, well, I want to be a prophet. It's that your desire should be, Paul was saying to the church at Corinth, their desire should have been that there would be prophecy take place in church, in the gathering of the worship services. They were to be concerned about these higher gifts of love. Verse 2, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Now, we're in it already. Let me just tell you, I believe faithfully the only way to understand chapter 14 is to understand Paul rebuking an illegitimate use of a concept of tongues. Because everything he's going to say is that the grace gift of tongues is for the purpose of communicating truth. And if you're using it in some kind of privatized, some kind of non-content driven way, if you're seeing it as just some kind of ecstatic experience, as evidently some of the Corinthians were trying to do, nothing in the rest of this chapter makes sense. 
So this is, to me, I understand it to be irony, if not a gentle sarcasm. He said, if you're going to pray in tongues, essentially what we're going to find before we're through is, what good does that do? Because even you don't understand what you're praying. And his point is not that that's a legitimate practice. His point is, what's the point of that? Because that's not what the grace gift of tongues is about. And that's what we see here. He says in verse 3, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, watch this, and encouragement and consolation. Notice the other person emphasis. The issue is not about the experience of prophesying. The issue is what's the fruit for someone else. And so you go on. In verse 4, the one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. And the point of the chapter is building yourself up is not what the gift of tongues or any of the other gifts is about. So he's being somewhat sarcastic. Verse 5, now I want you all to speak in tongues when needed. Clearly this is hyperbole, but the emphasis is clear. Look at it, but even more to prophesy. And what we're going to find later in the chapter next week is that only three really in a church service should ever prophesy in the church at Corinth. But he's, his point is, if there's going to be a choice, and there is, the choice should be prophecy, not untranslated tongues. Middle verse 5, the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, what he's saying is this, edification presupposes and requires understanding. There's a sense of a propositional truth. There's a sense of data. Can I say it that way? There's a sense of something to be believed and something to be understood, something to wrestle with. This is, this is what happens with edification. And when that's absence, edification doesn't happen. The grace gifts were designed and distributed for edification, for corporate ministry, not for individual self-focus. And so, for example, prophecy which, by the way, was literally uttering God's very words. That's what prophecy was in the Old Testament and today, uttering God's very words. Prophecy could build up the church. The experience of untranslated tongues did not build up the church and could not build up the church. That's what he's saying. Uh, let me try to set this in context. Let me tell you what this looked like in the first churches, because I think understanding this chapter, it's important to understand not in the context of the 20th century until we understand it in the context of the first century. And so let me explain to you the experiences of the, the first churches. And the first churches had no Bibles yet. There were no Bibles. And before you even go to the, next, the first point, let me emphasize that. There were no New Testaments. And even their copies of what we would call the Bible, the, scripture, the scriptures of Israel, you didn't carry the scrolls around when you came to worship. You know, can you imagine all 66 books of what we call the Old Testament carrying the scrolls to church? It didn't work that way. And clearly, do I have to say it? They didn't have their devices. So the, the Old Testament teachings, and especially then the New Testament, they had no Bibles yet. And so first of all, what was happening when these Christians were developing is they were being taught and everything that they were doing was being grounded in a, in a fresh, new, fleshed-out gospel that was rooted in the Old Testament. 
Secondly, it was all based on Jesus' teaching, on his work and his teaching. But Jesus wasn't there. Jesus wasn't around. So how did they know what was really based on Jesus' word and Jesus' work and Jesus' teaching? How did they know what was true? More so, there were these mysteries that were being revealed for the church. And when a mystery is revealed in the New Testament, it means it's revealed. It doesn't remain hidden. It's it's revealed. That's the way mystery is used. And so in the early church, when they came together for worship, they didn't have Bibles. So where were they going to get their truth? They were going to get it from the apostles and from the prophets and from uh, those who would appropriately speak in tongues. And that's where the message came from. And it was the message of God. And so the reason tongues existed was because this dispensing of God's word, because they didn't have Bibles in their laps, the dispensing of God's word might have happened to people who couldn't speak the language of the preacher. And so there was a provision for that. And the provision was for foreign language speakers who needed interpretation. They needed translation. So God not only super naturally inspired the apostles and the prophets to give his word in authoritative ways, but when it was needed, because there might have been some people in the worship service that didn't understand the language, when it was needed, God gave the supernatural gift of tongues so that they could understand the truth. And if that didn't happen, if God didn't, for whatever reason, in his plan and purposes, if he didn't provide for tongues and the translation of a tongue, then what happened was the same thing that happens to me when I go to Russia and I'm sitting in the service, and I don't understand anything that's happening because there's no communication happening. And that's what would happen in the early church apart from the gift of translated tongues. And so that's the reason there's an issue here. So Paul goes on in our text that we've read already. Paul goes on and he gives four practical illustrations. And these illustrations show that not only was prophecy to be valued over tongues, but communication was to be valued over experience. Communication was to be valued over experience. And of course, this was communication not of opinion. It was communication of the truth. And again, you find it in verses 6 through 12. So he gives the first illustration himself. He says, if I come speaking in tongues, and you don't speak the language of the tongues that I'm speaking, then how will you be edified? It's not going to benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching. And notice those words. Those are content-driven words. Second illustration is music. He says if, if these lifeless instruments, if they don't play distinct notes, it's, it's like you ever go to the, uh, a concert and you hear the instruments tuning before the concert? And it, it's as though you hear the tuning and they don't really play any music. They don't really play any notes other than the, the, everything tuning to middle C. And then they get up and say, thanks for coming to our concert. Paul says that, that's what it would be like to have untranslated tongues. There's no content involved. And then he uses the practical illustration of battle. Where he says if there's a bugle, the idea is sounding charge. If it plays taps, then the army doesn't know what to do. There has to be clarity in content. And then he just gives this illustration, an extended illustration beginning in verse 9, of what's basically common sense. And it's the basis of our illustrations already. If you don't speak the same language, if you don't speak the same language, there will not be accurate communication. 
each example, they're all pointless unless content is communicated. And in Corinth, here was the problem in the ancient church. They weren't worried about that because they were after the experience. They wanted to see someone speak in tongues. They wanted to be the one speaking in tongues. They wanted to have prophecies in order to impress others. We'll see that next week. They wanted to do something miraculous because a miracle today keeps the devil away. And that's what they were after instead of the truth of God's Word. There's no interest in being understood. Truth was de-emphasized. They were just looking for some kind of dramatic display of showy gifting. And so in church, what we should strive for is we should strive to see communication of the truth happen, not some ecstatic, dramatic experience. Not mere sounds, not some mystical experience, but communication and comprehension of God's truth. And where do we find that truth? Well, once again, in the early churches, they couldn't hold up a Bible like I just did. They couldn't do that. And so what we find in the early churches is that, first of all, the apostles were there. And the apostles communicated with authority. And sometimes the apostles were even able to work signs and miracles And the apostles were a limited group, limited to the disciples and their associates. They had seen the risen Lord. Secondly, there were prophets. And the prophets communicated, again, with the authority of God. A prophet was one who uttered words directly from God. We find this in the Old Testament. And there's nothing to expect that the people of the New Testament would have understood the office of prophet any different from those in the Old Testament. And so... Look at the words of Jeremiah. He says, Now the word of the Lord came to me. Whatever I command you, you shall speak. And then the Lord, Yahweh, put his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. That's what it means to be a prophet, to speak for God. Now let me just hit pause for a minute and make sure that you're clear what I'm saying. I don't stand here in the office of a prophet this morning. My words are not the words of God. Apart from whatever I say that's faithful to the word of God. Now I am just a channel of God's word. But in the early church, again, they didn't have their Bibles. And so where were they going to get their truth? They were going to get the truth, the truth of God, the words of God from apostles and from prophets And then for the benefit of those minority language speakers in worship, there were also those who spoke in tongues. And tongues communicated with authority. So apostles communicated with authority, prophets communicated with authority, and tongues communicated with authority, provided they were translated. Provided the tongue was translated. Look back in verse 5. You see this at the end of the verse where it says... Now, I want you all to speak in tongues. Again, it's hyperbole. But even more to prophesy. Why is prophecy so important? Look at it. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. So when there was proper interpretation in the church at Corinth, then the tongues was, they represented, the message it represented was on par with the prophet's and on par with the apostles. Again, the concern is truth. 
And so we are called to love. The church at Corinth was called to love. And love in the body of Christ means concern for others and concern for ministry to others, concern for service for others, not for having some personal experience. And this is what the grace gifts are for, not for our own enjoyment and our own fulfillment. And so in church, prophecy was to be valued over tongues and communication was to be valued over experience. Now pick it up in verse 13 and we'll find here that untranslated tongues could not edify believers. Untranslated tongues could not edify believers. Apart from any particular believer present who spoke and understood the language. So if I were able to speak Russian this morning, which is very close to Ukrainian, Vitaly would understand me. But the message isn't necessarily for Vitaly. I mean, it is Vitaly, but it's not necessarily for Vitaly. The message would have been for the congregation, for the building up, not of individually Matali, but the Vitali, but the building up of the congregation. So if I were speaking in Russian, in a tongue, there needed to be a translation so that the entire body was built up. Untranslated tongues could not edify believers. And so that's what he says, beginning in verse 13. Look at it. He says, therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret Speaking of prayer, then he says, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Now, can I just pause here and once again, I know this is challenging for a handful of you, but I just want to ask you the question, is it possible that we really think that God calls and equips us to pray in ways that are unfruitful? You don't think so. Verse 15, what am I to do? I pray with my spirit, but I pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing praise with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, the idea again is the idea of you're in a spiritual rapture and you speak in some foreign tongue and you have this mystical experience. If you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when you're giving amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? To say amen it basically means this is true, this is valid, and therefore this is for me. That's what we need to be able to say when the truth is proclaimed. And yet if it's proclaimed in a tongue you don't understand and no one translates it, you're not able to say amen. An outsider is likely a, a, an inquirer. The, the way the word's used is somebody who shows up at church and they're interested. And so somebody speaks in a tongue, it's a dramatic experience, and he's looking around and and if he doesn't speak that language, he's not able to be communicated to about it. So he has no legitimate response to it. And Paul's concerned about this because believers ought to be edified. Verse 17, for you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you because he preaches all over the Roman Empire. He preaches to all different languages. And evidently, sometimes God graciously gave him the grace gift of tongues, the ability to speak in a language he didn't know. He says this happens. Nevertheless, watch this, in church, there it is, in church I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. The contrast here between mind and spirit is likely the idea between objective truth that which is objective and rational versus merely subjective feelings. Now listen carefully. Let me try to apply this. What Paul is implying under the authority of the Word of God, what he was telling the Corinth church 2,000 years ago, 
And what you and I need to understand today about our church or whatever church we go to is this, and this is a hard statement, but I'm going to say it. Mindless worship is not worship. Mindless worship is not worship. And if you're looking for some experience, and the goal is, I just want to turn my mind off. I just want to have feelings. I just want to be in a trance. I, I just want to, this is the danger, by the way, of, of the, the, the move back in, the, in a previous generation about transcendental meditation and all of that. The idea that, that your mind, you disengage your mind. And the, Paul is telling the Corinth believers, that's not edification. Because edification is love, but that is linked to content, to truth, which means a rational thinking experience. Mindless worship is not worship. And this is the reason the Protestant church was called by Luther, one of the reformers, a mouth house. It's a strange term. But it's a translation of a German term. Don't ask me to speak it because I don't speak German. But it basically means the church is a mouth house. It is centered on, it is driven by the spoken, proclaimed word. By the way, it's one of the reasons that in churches like ours, the pulpit is in the center. Not some kind of altar. It's, the, the pulpit is in the center. Because we gather here as we worship, we gather to have the word of God preached and proclaimed to us, applied by the Holy Spirit. This is our philosophy of ministry just to give you an opportunity to clarify what we do here. I mean, quite frankly, what sense does it make for you? You are busy, successful people, and you take time, you, you, you have rights, you have your own life, and you come on Sunday morning, and you sit there, and you're yelled at for 45 minutes. Why, do, why does anyone do that? It's because we come under the teaching, hopefully not yelled at really, and my wife says this is always a problem, and so I'm trying not to do that today. But we come together for the teaching and proclamation of God's truth. It is content laden. There is something to hear, to learn, to think about, and to either accept or reject. And if it's faithful with the Word of God, you better accept it. Not because it's coming from me, because it's coming from God's Word. And that's what our church is defined by. As I've said several times over the last few weeks, we're really a Bible church. We're really a Bible church. And we gather as believers to be edified through the teaching and through the application of the Bible, the Word of God. And this shouldn't surprise us. This is what the New Testament tells us we should be doing. In 1 Corinthians 2, remember Paul said, but we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. Not just the spirit of Christ, whatever that might mean, not just the emotions of Christ, not just the experience of Christ, we have the mind of Christ, implying rationality. In the early church, when it was formed, what was the first thing they did? After the initial gift of speaking in tongues, which communicated to other language speakers, what did the church do? In Acts chapter 2, we read this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. That's what worship looked like in the early church, the apostles' teaching. So much so that Paul was able to say in Romans chapter 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How are we not conformed to this world? 
not by having church experiences, not by feeling great, not by some ecstatic use of a grace gift. How are we not conformed to this world? We consistently, regularly have our minds renewed. That's what a church gathering should be about. Not pure intellectualism. We're not talking about pure rationality, but certainly not mere emotionalism. One of the great English preachers of the last century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, called preaching logic on fire. Logic on fire. And that's what the gathering of the church is to be about. So the challenge of this, would you bear with me? The challenge of this in its personal application for us is where does any category for personal or private tongues fall in this? One commentator who believes that there is still a gift of private prayer language kinds of tongues, he says that self-edification is left unaddressed. I think that's significant. It's left unaddressed because Paul doesn't expect it to happen through a grace gift. Only here, outside of Acts, is tongues even referenced in the New Testament. As we'll see in a couple of weeks, that in and of itself shows a problem with thinking that speaking in tongues is a normative thing. There are no personal examples in the New Testament of any of the apostles or any of the gathered churches practicing the gift of tongues other than Paul's reference in this text of himself. So if you'll bear with me, based on this text, the concept of untranslated tongues, of some kind of private prayer language, it implies no understanding on the tongue speaker. It, it has no edification for the gathered church because it's in private. And as we're going to see in the text before we're through, it admits no opportunity to be assigned to unbelievers, which the Bible says that's what tongues is. So if that's true of untranslated tongues in the assembly, it's also true of private prayer language tongues. And to quote Forrest Gump, that's all I'll say about that. Because I need to move to a conclusion. And the last thing I want to show you is that not only can untranslated tongues not evangelize or edify believers, it cannot evangelize unbelievers. And this is technical, so I'm going to hurry through it. But pick it up in verse 20. You shouldn't miss this. He says, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but your thinking be mature. There you see it again. The issue is your thinking. There's a rational truth here. In verse 21, in the law, he's quoting Isaiah 28 here. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Here's Paul's conclusion. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. Now, really quickly, what does this mean? Well, signs arrest interest. Tongues was a sign to unbelievers in Israel because in their unbelief, God was judging them from people through another tongue. And you cannot mistake the fact that after Israel rejected their Messiah Jesus on the day of Pentecost, there was a... There was a explosion of unknown tongues or foreign tongues right in the center of Jerusalem. It was a sign of not only blessing, but often signs are, are signs not just of blessing, but also of judgment. And so what happens, Paul says, you have to understand this. If you're going to be so enamored with tongues, 
You have to recognize one of the things God's doing is he's giving the gift of tongues to condemn those who refuse to believe. One Old Testament scholar says it this way, a word of grace rejected becomes a word of condemnation. A word of grace rejected becomes a word of condemnation, and thus it's a sign of judgment for persistent rebels. But there is hope here. Because even though unbelieving people, it ends up being a sign of judgment, there's this assumption that that God can still do a work. So look at verse 23. If therefore the whole church comes together, there it is again, and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy, and again, it's hyperbole, you know, imagine in this church with all of us here this morning, every single person prophesies, that's chaos. Next week, we have order in the church. If all prophesy and an unbeliever enters, he is convicted by all, he is called into account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Truth matters. Clearly taught truth, communicated truth matters, not some unusual ecstatic experience. And as much as we think, well, if unbelievers really saw some miracle of tongues, often it's just a sign of unbelief and judgment for them. But what God uses is he uses the proclamation of his truth. And I should not pass on before I say this this morning that this fundamental truth of the gospel is being proclaimed this morning for you. And fortunately, the assumption is, I could be wrong, but the assumption is all of us understand English. And so in English, you are hearing a warning that apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ, you are under the condemnation of God. And the only way to escape his condemnation is by putting your hope and faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. That's what we call the gospel. And so, prophecy was to be valued over tongues. Communication was to be valued over experience. Untranslated tongues could not edify believers. And untranslated tongues could not evangelize unbelievers. Where does that leave us? Well, there are clearly more things to say. And over the next couple of weeks, we'll address those issues. But when we deal with the Word of God, when we deal with truth, we look for commands, don't we? Let, let me have you look back at verse 20. Let me show you that command. And with this, we'll move to a conclusion. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. We heard this last week, didn't we? Paul said, when I was a child, how did I speak as a child? I thought as a child, I behaved as a child. And when I became a man, I was done with childish things. And remember what he was talking about in chapter 13. He was talking about the, the, the people in Corinth so enamored with these dramatic gifts. He says, that's childish. Because those things, you're so enamored with them, they're going to pass away. You need to be mature to recognize the things that last, the things that matter. And here he returns to the same idea. In verse number 20, he says, don't be childish. Don't be children in your thinking. See, here's the problem with children. As we said last week, you can't reason with them. Unless your grandchildren are way different than mine. You can't really reason with them when they're little children. And the other problem is, children, think about it, children prefer amusement to edification. Now, think about it. 
By the way, sometimes we, we're childish, aren't we? Sometimes we prefer amusement to edification. That's what a lot of churches have devolved into. Well, let's just entertain people. You know, let's have a good time and let's, let's, let's be inspiring and kind of give them encouragement for the week. And that's what Sunday morning is about. And so to be amused in some way, as opposed to being edified by the truth of God. But children prefer amusement to edification. Children prefer what is flashy to what is helpful. Don't be childish in your thinking. When it comes to church, you need to recognize that what God calls us to is not some fascination with unusual experiences, but he really does call us to the regular mundane study, application, and preaching of God's Word. A long time ago, I figured out how many sermons I had preached, and it was a bunch. It was a bunch of sermons, let's just say it that way. And I try to remember specific sermons that I preached. I preached a bunch of sermons. And I was embarrassed to say, I can't really remember very many specific sermons. Someone heard that analogy about the feeding of the Word of God, and they said, you know, I think back on all the meals I had growing up, all the meals my mom fixed for me, and I had a favorite food, but I can't remember very many specific meals. I just know that every day I was fed. And that's the way we're to think about feeding on the Word of God. Not so much some kind of... I, we, we make these sermon handouts that, that I'm sure all of you fill out with diligence and go home and put them on your refrigerator. I, we know that's what you do with them, right? No, we don't, we don't expect that. We're just trying to facilitate as well as we can, as functionally as we can, we're trying to facilitate the weekly feeding on the Word of God. And we don't expect that you'll remember a sermon outline forever, but we expect that the Holy Spirit will take that truth and pour it into your heart in such a way that it will equip you to chase after Jesus more effectively this week. And specifically, in the gathered church, it should equip us to love each other well and to serve each other well and to use the grace gifts that God is giving us not for our own enjoyment or fulfillment but rather that we might serve one another. And you know what another word for that is? Edification. And another word for edification, at least in this context, is love. If we're building one another up, we're loving someone which is the opposite of tearing them down. If you tear someone down, you don't love them. But building up is to love people. And that's what we're to do. Paul said it this way to Timothy. He said, the aim of our charge is love. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere love one another. So this kind of ministry, a ministry of the Word, ministry of, as Luther said it, ministry of a mouth house, this kind of ministry, it should lead to love. It should lead to us loving God and loving our neighbor. And it's all driven by communicating the truth. Never forsaking what one commentator calls 
the rightful place of intellect, but rather we should be challenged and stimulated and humbled and informed as we leave. And that's what it means to love well in the church. Your takeaway today is a simple proposition, but it's rooted in what we've seen in chapter 14. We cannot love one another apart from the truth. We cannot love one another apart from the truth of God. That's why we're here. Let's pray together. Father, we do these things without any doubt. We do them inadequately. And yet you are somehow pleased to use us. We would ask, Father, that you would drive these truths into our heart. We would come to love your word like the psalmist that we would come to cherish it, that we would see it as the means by which our minds need to be renewed because how often, how daily, sometimes it seems hourly, we need our minds renewed instead of being conformed to this world. Help us see that you have especially designed the body of Christ and especially in the body of Christ, the gatherings of the church to do just this, to renew our minds with your truth. And you've given us grace gifts through which we can serve one another to help make that happen. Father, teach us these things. Remind us that if we truly love people, we cannot love them apart from your truth. We know, Lord, that's challenging in our day and time. Give us wisdom in loving our neighbors and loving our family and loving those in our lives who don't yet know you. Give us wisdom in loving those people that we don't like. Teach us how to love them. And ground all of it in your truth. And help us as we use our grace gifts that are still active. Help us in using those to love each other well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.